My guest this week requires very little introduction. An actor, writer, director and producer. He appeared in his first film in 1961 and has subsequently been nominated for no fewer than 14 Oscars, winning Best Director for Reds in 1981. We are, of course, talking about the legend that is Warren Beatty. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast in which the stars of screen discuss music. Throughout his career, Warren has demonstrated a passion for source cues in particular, from the bubblegum pop of shampoo to the rap that provides the unlikely sonic inspiration for Bullworth. He's also worked with world-renowned composers, Stephen Sondheim, Ennio Morricone and Danny Elfman. Still going strong at 80, his latest project is Rules Don't Apply, which he wrote, directed and also stars in as real-life tycoon Howard Hughes. Among the cast is Lily Collins, who as aspiring actress Marla Mabry performs a specially commissioned song during the narrative. We'll hear a bit of that in a moment, but this particular episode begins as it ends with the piano maestro that is Errol Garner. Beatty, welcome to Soundtracking. I'm very excited to know where to start with music with you. I mean, how much does music come into your your life on a personal level, but also on a professional level when you're writing, producing, directing, acting? Right. I did play the piano. I made money at it when I left Northwestern University and went to New York and uh, played piano in a bar. And I had a good Errol Garner imitation that I would do. (laughs) Did you have the big glass on the end of the piano for people to put their tips in? Yeah, there was some of that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Let's talk about Rules Don't Apply first, if that's okay, which is this interpretation of this love story between these two couples, where the thing that could come between them is this character, Howard Hughes, who obviously was Mm -hmm. a real person that you never met, which I was interested to learn as well. Encapsulating and covering the music of that time period, how did you want to go about that within this film? And, and music in particular is a song within the film that is a recurrent, which is a wonderful way of telling part of the story, really. I, I felt that song was appropriate for the period. It's an interesting subject, the whole uh, approach to score and the delicacy of it. Yeah. The song was written by Lorraine Feather, who is the daughter of Leonard Feather. Are you f- you're familiar with yeah. Leonard Feather, yeah. the great jazz critic? And uh, her godmother was uh, Billie Holiday. And, wow. Um, and Lorraine wrote uh, this song, and I felt it was nice to have as part of the authorship of Marla that she be able to write a song, not mm-hmm. just cash in on her physical beauty, and that to some extent that would be the salvation that does exist in commercial show business yeah. that uh, a little thing called an art form and i think we're constantly facing that subject of 
well, are we going to go for the money or are we going to go for something that uh, means a little more? One day I told my friend I was terribly blue. Was it far too late to do what I dreamed I could do? He thought for a moment, then he answered. He said the rules don't apply to you. He said it very simply and quietly too. But as if there wasn't any doubt at all that he knew. He gave me a gift that I would treasure. He said the rules don't apply to you. With the composers that you worked with, you've worked with an amazing number of composers over the years in your films. Let's talk about Bullworth and working with Morricone on that, with the, the score. And, and can you talk a little bit about working with him and what that experience was like? Well, Ennio, I guess you would say he is incredibly productive. He's fun to work with, and he's great. How do you decide which composer you want to work with? My immediate response to that question would be I, uh, that I don't. You know, I have an idea, and then I, I, I guess it's not as if you turn it over to a composer. So yeah. I, I would say it's important that someone would tolerate my process, and uh, Ennio tolerates my process. What's the conversations that you have with someone like that though, with regards to when do you bring them in? Do you bring them in whilst you're filming, before filming, or is it something that you you talk about in the editing process? Or It, it varies, because I also have a, an inclination to go with stuff that already exists uh, very often. And sometimes you make a last-minute decision. I'm thinking at the moment about Bonnie and Clyde, where Charles Strauss had written a very good score. And at the end of the final mix, mm. I had always been kind of tortured by the thought of the possibility of having flattened Scruggs do Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And really, in the last minute, I threw in Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and then I played that for Arthur Penn, who I worked with on the movie. Yeah. And uh, it worked. Before that, the, uh, the score was much more what one would call classical. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. Glad to meet you. I'm Clyde Barrett. Clyde. We robbed banks. 
It's an instinctive thing, isn't it? Thinking too much about it can ruin it. It might just come to you in, yeah. a, in a flash, a well, moment I've, of inspiration. I've worked several times with uh, Stephen Sondheim. An important thing about Stephen is that he's as valuable an observer of a movie as anyone I've ever known. He was very helpful on Reds, but of course uh, also wrote a very a good song. feel that uh, making a movie is completely a collaborative process and I think that the more you take advantage of that usually the better it is I think putting together the collaboration and then having a dialectic that I wouldn't necessarily call an argument but to continually being able to express different points of view is very very valuable as long as the director has the final decision talk a little bit about Shampoo and that collaboration with, I mean, Paul Simon was the composer on Shampoo, but also the contemporary songs that were in there, artists like... Yeah, we took the songs of the period, because Shampoo was a period movie when we made it. Yeah. And that was another situation where um, Hal Ashby and Robert Town and I, we would make it a point to kick things around uh, every night. I I try to do that whenever I'm making a movie, to keep the um, collaborative aspect fresh and active. And um, if you don't have something to argue about, maybe you should try to find something to argue about. <laughs> but make it a pleasant argument. Was it like collaborating with Paul Simon on, on Shampoo? Well, that was kind of funny. Um, funny ha-ha or funny weird? Um, <laughs> or both? <laughs> I guess 
Paul had written a, a few songs that he thought might be good for the movie. He had written a song called Still Crazy After All These Years. And uh, I loved the song, but I thought it sort of obliterated the movie to some extent. I met my old lover on the street last night. She seems so glad to see me. I just smiled. And we talked about some old times, and we drank ourselves some beers. Still crazy after all these years. Oh, still crazy after all these years. Four in the morning, crapped out, yawning, longing my life away. a couple of other songs of his, but melodically what we finally used had a, a mysterious um, history to it. The melody is perfect, I think, for what was happening in the movie, but Paul had uh, written it originally as um, a song about the dangers that faced Israel, and um, the original song was, <laughs> well, much. we finally used the song without, without lyrics, and I think it works uh, very well uh, f for the for the movie. Those can't be easy conversations to have with an artist, where you're kind of like, I like the melody, just not the lyrics. I think that sometimes you have to be ca cautious if you get a really good song, that it might cause the attention to wander off to that song. in your success yeah. and, and you know how accomplished you are as a writer producer director when you go to an artist or a band and you go I'd love to use your music in the film uh -huh. is it a case of they go yeah of course well there, <laughs> there's a songwriter that I, I don't think there's a more famous one in the world and I won't say the name but I asked him if he would be interested in writing a song for the movie and he said yeah and he wrote a song that was fantastic it really was wonderful and I thought it distracted me from the movie, mm -hmm. and we laughed about it. The irony is that person still has never recorded that song. Maybe he has recorded it, but he's never sold it, yeah. or whatever you call it when Released you come it. out. Released yeah. it. 
but that's what I'm saying. I, I won't say who it is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that, that has happened on a number of movies. And so I make it a point to not talk about it so that people will put up with me when I, when I go into the process. You know, I was um, lucky enough to have Madonna in Dick Tracy, and, yeah. and she was terrific in it. I love the theatrical side of her that came out in that performance. Yeah. The, the real, you know, the kind of showgirl element of it, I think. Yeah. It's just wonderful. With Danny Elfman as well on Dick Danny, Trace. Yeah, yeah Dick it, Tracy. Danny Elfman was uh, terrific. about appreciating and, and understanding your process. Dick Tracy was, was a musical, really. When I, well, I think of it as a musical. Is that a different process as a director? Lily, in Rules Don't Apply, she performs that song live within the film. Mm -hmm. But with Dick Tracy, did it work like that? Or were the songs recorded in advance and the actors had to lip sync around them? How did that work? We you shot know? them live. Really? Yeah. I think you gain a lot by going with the imperfections of one take. It's like real life. Yeah, to pre-record it and then mouth, uh, lip sync, I, I'm not crazy about that. <laughs> what can you lose the blues Why keep concealing everything you're feeling Say it to her What can you lose Maybe it's yours, she's had clues 
which she chose to ignore Maybe though she knows and just wants to go on as before As a friend, nothing more So she closes the door Well, if she does Those are the dues Once the words are spoken Something may be broken Still you love her What can you do? Can we go back to Bullworth for a second? Because there's a certain genre that kind of encompassed that film and, and that performance as well from you. When you were writing that, what was the inspiration for that part of the character and him embracing that culture and that specific type of music? Was there a specific influence for you for that? Yes, the use of rap. Yeah. Well, it was very unexpected to have an elderly uh, white <laughs> senator. Uh, senator suddenly doing this and... I thought it was funny. It was very funny. And, uh, you know, I had gotten to know uh, Tupac and Dre, and yeah. and I, I felt it was very much a part of getting the truth out. I got the flavor, make a zoom, a zoom, uh-huh. the LL Cool J. Yeah. Give me room, look up in my eyes as I lower the boom. 20,000 freaks packed up in one room. Uh, all I want to do is zoom, a zoom, zoom, zoom. What you want to do? Uh, what you want to do? In terms of your performance, though, and embracing that, do you look back with fond experience of it, fond memories? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I learned so much about rap. Uh, who's hitting me at the moment is, uh, is Cube, Ice Cube. Ice Cube he, yeah. he, he, he speaks so brilliantly about uh, the process, as did Tupac, as does Dre. And... I thought that my own lack of a background in rap was part of the fun because Jay Bullworth had no background in it and then suddenly it just comes out. Yeah. The scene with it at the brunch is mm. just fantastic. I, I mean, mm. there's so many great scenes in that as well. Yeah. Now let me hear you say it. Big money. Oh, big money. Big money. Big money. Big money. Big money, big money, big money, big money. One man, one vote. Now is that really real? The name of our game is let's make a deal. Now people got the problems, the haves and the have not, but the ones that make me listen pay for 30 second spots. 30 seconds. Yeah. 30, 30 seconds. Yeah. Yo, Beck of America, this table over here, Wells Fargo and Citibank, you really very dear. Loan billions to Mexico and never have to fear, cause taxpayers, taxpayers, take it in the rear. Take it in the rear. Yo, over here, we got our friends from oil. They don't give a shit how much wilderness is spoil.
Warren, thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you kind of delving into the history as well and, and, and sharing some of your stories with us. I really appreciate it. I can tell you a funny story. Go on then. When I was very uh, young, I went to a nightclub to hear Lenny Bruce, and I got invited to a party. I was 20. I went to this party by myself. It was a few blocks away from a place called The Interlude, where Lenny Bruce was playing. And I came to the door, and it was very, very quiet. The room was darkly lit, and there was a beautiful grand piano. No one was sitting at it, and there was a candle on it. And uh, I was a kid who just came to Hollywood, you know. And I think what I told you before was that I had a pretty good, or I have a pretty good Errol Garner imitation, where you drag the left hand behind the right hand. You would be vaguely impressed if I were to do that that right now. I wouldn't do it for long, because I would kind of run out of steam. But you'd say, (laughs) oh, oh. But I would, there were people that I would be able to imitate. Uh, George Shearing, Errol Garner, uh... Teddy Wilson, a lot of people. But Errol Garner was the one I really liked to do. But I have to tell you that I am a very minor piano player. So (laughs) I go into this party, and the the party is filled with incredibly attractive people. Let me put it that way, so that I don't Mm -hmm. become too tasteless here. And (laughs) and, uh, they're, they're all sitting around the room and quietly talking. And I... Thought I'm going to go and sit down at the piano and just see if I can impress. <laughs> and, and so I sat, and an amazingly beautiful young woman looked at me when I and I sat down to do my Errol Garner stuff. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she came over toward the piano, and then she stood there. And I could be more descriptive about this, but I'm avoiding it because I'm a careful person. And what I remember is that her nostrils were flaring somewhat. Her jaw dropped, and I thought, I think she's impressed. And I'm dragging the left hand behind the right hand, trying, trying to act as if I'm not trying to impress her. And then she says, Whoa, you've got a lot of nerve. And as she said that, something struck me, and I panned over to the other side of the room, and it was Errol Garner sitting in a chair with several people draped all over him. And I stopped playing, and then he gave me a sign of two thumbs up. (laughs) But I don't do that anymore. I would go into a brightly lit room and, you know, look and see, may I play the piano or something like that. Warren, thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
That's Misty, the tune that made Errol Garner famous, which Warren Beatty has no doubt performed once or twice throughout the ages. My huge thanks to Warren for taking the time to talk to us. His latest film, Rules Don't Apply, is on general release now. Subscribe to the podcast by heading to edithbowman.com where you can also catch up with all of our previous episodes with the likes of Edgar Wright, Ron Howard and Nicholas Winden-Reffin. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do spread the word amongst your friends if you like what you hear. Next up is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 and 2 director Mr James Gunn. Films with blistering soundtracks. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.